We are beginning this morning a new series on a book in the Old Testament, the book of Micah, that will take us through the season of Lent as well, all the way up through to Palm Sunday. Uh, The book of Micah rests in the the book of the minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets, and Micah's the fortunate one because he has a cool name, and people name their kids Micah these days. And so we all at least have heard of Micah in some way. It's too bad for Haggai and Habakkuk and Nahum and people like that that you probably don't know and can't remember. I'm guessing the book of the minor prophets is somewhat uh, a book that has some distance between us. And so some of what we'll do in this first time together is try to break down that distance and understand a bit more of what's going on in these prophetic books so that we can glean from this book what God might have us hear over the coming weeks. Micah was a prophet. Prophets uh, spoke on God's behalf. He lived, as we're told in verse 1 of chapter 1, in a town southwest of Jerusalem. Um, The town's name is, thank you, Morasheth. So southwest of Jerusalem, he ministered in the latter part of the 8th century B.C. Around 730 to 700 B.C. is about when Micah's ministry took place. And this was a time of upheaval on the political front. The Assyrian Empire was growing and and brewing um, off to the east. And uh, they had enjoyed a time of prosperity and peace under King Uzziah in the southern kingdom and Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. They had experienced some measure of economic prosperity, but there was trouble on the front, on the horizon. Assyria was growing stronger, and their internal conflicts, which had uh, taken up their energy in the middle of that century, had come to a cease. They had a new kind of Napoleon leader uh, who wanted to dominate the world, Tiglath-Pileser, and, uh, and so there was threat on their borders. So there was political upheaval. There was also moral upheaval. In the economic affluence that, or abundance that came in the middle of that century, the, um, the nations of Israel at this point were divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. In the book of Micah, when Micah says Israel, he tends to mean the whole lot of both southern and northern kingdoms. When he says Samaria, he means northern kingdom. When he says Jerusalem or Zion, he means southern kingdom, but often he's speaking to both. And both had experienced a sense of economic prosperity, but instead, as is often the case, of bringing spiritual vitality. The affluence of Israel brought a deep self-centeredness and greed and injustice, and we'll get to hear about that in the weeks to come. You might wonder, just at the beginning, what, what we could glean from such old words of a prophet. But the reality is there are a lot of lessons in the book of Micah for us. We'll learn about God's heart for justice. Next week, we'll actually come to the probably the most well-known verse from the book of Micah, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We'll get to learn about justice. We'll learn about the reality and devastating effects of sin, about God's judgment upon sin and the consequences of sin. We'll also learn about God's determination to bless in the midst of sin, to bring about a worldwide kingdom of peace under a Davidic king who would be born in Bethlehem, other of the very well-known sections of this prophetic book. And we'll learn about God's character to forgive as well. It's really important to understand the ministry of the prophets in uh, the context, and what we'll do this morning, of the nature of the relationship that they share. If not, if you just opened up the prophets and started reading, you're going to find yourself probably uh, a bit kind of taken back 
by the measure of intensity and the, the words of judgment and woe and warning. And you might think, well, this sounds all a bit strange. This doesn't sound like the God that I worship who's revealed himself in Jesus. And it's a fair thing to, to ask those questions, but we want to understand the nature of the relationship between God and his people. That helps us then to understand what's going on in the prophetic books, including the book of Micah. And so to do this this morning, we're going to start in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, for the next two weeks. This, this morning, verses 1 through 5, and then next week, verses 6 through 8. Obviously, this is not the beginning of the book of Micah. Micah is organized with three large sections of oracles that have doom and hope. Beginning uh, chapters 1 and 2 is the first, chapters 3 through 5 is the second, and chapters 6 and 7 is the third of these oracles. Each of them begins with the word here, signifying a new section. But instead of moving chronologically section 1, oracle 1, oracle 2, oracle 3, we don't have that kind of clarity with the book of Micah. It's quite likely that each of these oracles is covering similar ground and terrain, slightly different contexts and emphases, but all have a, the similar, a similar kind of texture. So we're free to, in a sense, dive in where we want to, to try to help us access this book in a helpful way. So that's why we're starting in chapter 6, verse 1. So if you've got your Bible, and if you can find the book of Micah, open up to Micah, chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 1, reading the first two verses. Hear what the Lord, who I will often refer to as Yahweh, the proper name of the God of Israel, revealed to Moses in Exodus 3 in the burning bush. Hear what Yahweh says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of Yahweh, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for Yahweh has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel." an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. We're starting here because this passage illustrates, picks up, communicates for us the nature of the relationship between God and who he calls in verse 2 his people, Israel. And it's defined by this word covenant, a word incidentally that does not appear in the book of Micah and in several other of the prophetic books, but is very clearly the backdrop within which the prophetic work of God's prophets is to be understood. A covenant. It's not a word that we use a lot in our world today, but it is a word that we use often in one particular place in our world today, and that is the place of marriage. This is probably our most familiar act of covenant-making that we understand and access as people in the modern world. In a marriage, a man and a woman come together by God's institution and design, and they make a covenant together. And that covenant includes certain kinds of privileges in the marriage and obligations, including especially the obligation of exclusive fidelity to the one in, to, with whom they've entered into covenant. It's no surprise that the Old Testament prophets, and, and Hosea is the key prophet on this note, use the idea of marriage to communicate something about the relationship between Yahweh and his people Israel. They've been betrothed. They've been brought into covenant together. But there's one key distinction between our marriage covenants, which take place between two equal partners, and the covenant between God and his people Israel, because they are not equals. One is creator, the other is creature. One is 
eternal. The other is very finite. And so there's a distinction. So the covenant between Yahweh and Israel, though it is compared to marriage, is perhaps more like the ancient Near Eastern covenants that were found uh, among the Hittites, between suzerains and vassals. A suzerain being a superior, a vassal being an inferior. And these covenants would happen between these two uh, unequal parties, in which the suzerain would provide a, a measure of protection and provision for the inferior party, and the vassal, in return, would provide dedication and loyalty and obedience to the superior party, to the suzerain. And this is, would be a similar kind of thing that we've got between Yahweh and Israel, where Yahweh is the superior, the sovereign, entering into covenant with the inferior, his people Israel. Even those ancient covenants in the Hittite culture had a series of blessings and curses that defined the stipulations of the relationship between the two parties. Blessings if they follow the covenant obligations that are put upon them, and then curses if they choose to deviate from those obligations and walk in a different direction. Deuteronomy 28 is a well-known uh, chapter in which these are laid out quite clearly. So this covenant relationship defines the, the way in which Yahweh and his people are relating, and it is the entry point for understanding the ministry of the prophets. Because the situation in the 8th century, in both northern and southern kingdoms, was that the obligations of the covenant upon Israel were being violated, left incomplete. And the ministry of the prophets is that they come into a situation where there is a clearly defined relationship, and they serve in many ways as God's prosecuting attorneys in making a lawsuit, a case, against his people. So you caught the word indictment twice in verse 2. The indictment of the Lord, for Yahweh has an indictment against his people. It's the same word in verse 1 when he says, plead your cause, make your argument, contend against. And the prophets enter in as the prosecuting attorneys for Yahweh, the plaintiff, and bring the case against Israel, the defendant. And in this case, in verses 2, in verse 2, verses 1 and 2, the, rock, the mountains, the hills, and the enduring foundations of the earth are called into this lawsuit as the witnesses. Because they would have been there long before Israel was put on the map. And they would have been there when Yahweh and Israel entered into this relationship together. And so Yahweh instructs the prophet to plead the case before the mountains and let the, heel, the hills hear your voice. This was a relationship that had defined terms. And the prophets come into the situation to say those terms are being violated and to bring an accusation, an accusing of sin against Israel, to bring a word of punishment or of judgment, and then also to bring a word of hope and restoration. All of, the major, all of the major and minor prophets have these three elements of accusation, judgment, and hope and restoration. And that is the case here in the book of Micah. When there's this defined relationship between God and his people, there's an obligation upon his people to respond. And lest we think that the prophetic ministry of God has come to an end in the Old Testament era, I want to point out that we also are in a covenant with the God of heaven and earth that binds us in a certain kind of arrangement and relationships. 
And that when Jesus enters into the world in his earthly ministry, this is still kind of under the old covenant moment, he, he enters like a prophet. And he brings a word of judgment, particularly against the corrupt leaders of his day. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests and the elders, often all are seen as the opponents to the work of God in Jesus. They're all seen as corrupting the true work of God's kingdom and as leading the people of God astray. So Jesus stands in the line of the prophets and carrying that prophetic ministry into the beginnings of the new covenant. And lest we think for a moment that that ministry of of, of God's holy accusation against his people ends even before Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember what happens in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. There, Jesus, the risen and exalted one who reigns over the universe, who holds the keys to death in Hades, speaks by the Spirit to the seven churches. And to five of those churches, this is what Jesus says. He says, to the church in Ephesus, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. It sounds a lot like the prophets in the Old Testament. To Pergamum, but I have a few things against you. You have some, some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth to Thyatira, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. To Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. This is Jesus speaking. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. And perhaps most well known from these seven letters to Laodicea, the last of the churches to whom Jesus speaks, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Why does he say these things? Why do the prophets minister to Israel? Why does the ongoing risen Christ who reigns over his church, who died for our sakes and gave himself up freely for us all, why does he speak in this way to the church? Verse 19 of Revelation 3, those whom I love, Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, he says, and repent. The work of the prophets, the accusation of the prophets, the, the, the lawsuit of the prophets that they bring against Israel, the word of Jesus, our risen king, that he speaks to the church even today, is a word that arises out of the deep covenantal love that God has for his people. A love that longs to see his people purified and renewed and full of life. A love that longs to see his people walk away from the sins of injustice and idolatry and sexual immorality and all these things that he lists in the prophets and even in Revelation 2 and 3 and enter into the fullness of life and holiness and purity in a way that honors and pleases their, their God and King. He loves us, and because he loves us, 
There is this ministry of the prophets that speaks to his people and calls them into a new way of life and out of an old way of life. What what is it that fuels this ministry? Yes, it's the love of God. But let's get back to our text in Micah 6, beginning at verse 3 now. He's called Micah to bring the case in the covenantal context against his people. And now he says this, Oh, my people, the case begins, the opening argument. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous or the saving acts of the Lord. He rehearses the history of his redeeming work. He lays before them the work that he has done, and he's, he, he, he picks up on the two great themes at the beginning of their formation, their exodus out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, and then he picks up on the end of their formation moment, on their entrance into the promised land. So look at verse 4. I brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery. That echoes the prologue to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And I sent before you godly leadership, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. I love that he mentions Miriam here, Moses' older sister, because Miriam, without Miriam, there would be no Moses. Miriam had the courage and bravery to hide her younger brother in the river and to speak to the, to the princess of Pharaoh when she came down to the riverside and to say, can I go get a nurse for this baby that you want to keep? Miriam led the people of God in worship after the deliverance from the Red Sea. In one of her not finer moments with her brother Aaron, she challenges the leadership of Moses in Numbers 12 and is afflicted in that moment. But she's remembered here as one of these godly leaders that God has given to his people to bring them out of slavery and bondage. And then in in verse 5, oh my people, he moves to the second part, the entry. Remember. Now I'm guessing most of us don't have Balak and Balaam's story quite in mind, so we need some help remembering. And this word remember is beautiful. Even as Yahweh is bringing his case against his wayward people. He's doing it in a wooing way. Remember. Remember. It doesn't just mean to recall the facts. It means to make actual again these redemptive acts that you might have faith in them again. Remember, remember, remember what I've done. Balak wanted to curse the people of God as they were traveling southwest of the Dead Sea, moving up east of the Jordan. They didn't have the power to get through his land. He wanted to curse them. He called on the, 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 the seer, Balaam, to bring a curse. He said, I want you to curse the people of Israel because it seems like they've got some supernatural power. And, and Yahweh intervenes and won't let Balaam curse. Even when Balaam has made up his mind to go curse the people, Yahweh uses Balaam's donkey to speak a word of rebuke to Balaam. And what Yahweh is saying, remember that when the world was set against you, I stepped in, I intervened, I made a way, I brought blessing instead of curse. And then he says, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? Shittim was the place east of the Jordan, the last place that they camped before they entered into the promised land. And Gilgal was west of the Jordan. This was the first place that they camped after they crossed through the Jordan River. In both the beginning of their formation, God delivers them out of harm, brings them through, miraculously, through the sea, 
In the ending of their formation moment, God takes them from the east to the Transjordan on the east side of the river and miraculously parts the Jordan River that they might walk through on dry land and enter into the promised land in Canaan. And Yahweh is saying, I want you to remember these things. Remember my gifts. Remember my grace. As he describes it, that you may know at the end of verse 5, the righteous acts of the Lord. This can also be translated saving acts. The word is sedek, which means righteous. But the righteousness of God in the Old Testament is understood as God's fidelity to his covenant obligations to save and redeem and protect and provide for his people. And God wants them to know this. It is these foundational acts of God's redemption that define the covenantal relationship between Yahweh and his people. There would be no people if there were not the grace of the redemptive mercy and miraculous intervention of the God of heaven and earth to pluck them out of harm's way, to protect them from those who would harm them along the way, and to bring them safely into the promised land. And he's saying, I want you to remember this. As we fast forward into our moment today, we need to remember that we have no place in the family of God outside of God's abundant, sovereign grace. We have no right to be in the people of God outside of God's lavish, amazing love. Just like Israel stuck in bondage in Egypt, but even worse, we were, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, he says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. It is the mercy and grace of God that is the foundation of the relationship that exists between Yahweh and his people. And in their affluence and in their abundance and in their panic to run to Assyria and Egypt and make political alliances to save their backs, the people of God had forgotten. That's the clear implication of this text. They had forgotten the wondrous and mighty works of God to rescue them out of bondage. Verse 3 implies that they have some complaints against Yahweh. What have I done to you, he says. How have I wearied you? They must be saying, you're wearying us. You're, you're hurting us. And it's probably because the Assyrians are coming in in 701 B.C. They enter all the way to the gates of Jerusalem, essentially. And God turns them around by his grace. And God's response would be, when he says in verse 3, answer me, God says, there is no answer. I have not been unfaithful to you, Israel. I have done these great works that you have forgotten. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have brought you into the land of Canaan. I am the reason that you're alive and that you belong to me, that you're in this relationship, that you have a hope and a future and a story and an identity. But you, you have been unfaithful. I've been faithful, he says. But you, you have been unfaithful. And you're just simply receiving now the, 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 the cursed side of the covenantal relationship in which we have entered. 
Of course, God says these things to him with the heart of a loving father who longs for them to not stay in that place of forgetfulness, but to remember what he has done for them, how he has brought them into this new life. The covenant is the basis of prophetic ministry. And the covenant is grounded on the the unilateral work of the grace and mercy of God to rescue us, his people, out of the bondage of sin and to bring us into the abundance of life. That is God's work that we celebrate week after week after week, that we're called to remember. And with that rescue, then, and this is where we'll go next week, comes a clear obligation, a covenantal way of life that God longs for his people to follow. In verses 6 through 8, this individual who represents the nation stands in and says, with what shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before God on high? In other words, yeah, you've done these amazing works. What is the response? What is it that you want from us? He has told you. The prophet responds. He has told you. And that's what we'll begin to explore together next week. The obligation of the people of God who have been rescued by his mighty grace to live a life marked by justice and hesed, love, steadfast love, and to walk humbly with our God. This was the very thing that the people of God in the 8th century were not doing. And this is the very reason that the love of God was exercised in sending Micah and the prophets, was to come and call them out to remember their redemption and to embrace this way of life under the